The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I will be your host today. And we have the joy and privilege of welcoming into the studio Dr. Joseph Piper, the president of the seminary, to answer some of our listeners' questions. So today we'll be discussing such things as what is your favorite heresy and various other questions and issues that you have sent to me to ask Dr. Piper. Dr. Piper, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Zach. It is always a pleasure. Well, if you would, Dr. Piper, would you please pray for our time together, and then I will share some announcements and we'll dive into the questions. Great. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you who are a great and glorious God, clothed in splendor, majesty, altogether dwelling in light, unapproachable, and yet stooping to us in grace and condescension and coming to us in your incarnate Son, redeeming us, giving us the Spirit to bring us into union, giving us your word that we might know you and commune with you. We thank you that the Scriptures principally teach what we're to believe concerning you and how we're to live. And we ask today as we try to apply your word to these questions that your Spirit will give us much wisdom and insight. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Before we dive into the questions, I have um, one announcement I'd like to share. And then, of course, uh, Dr. Piper, if you have any announcements, you're welcome to share them as well. My announcement has to do with our GPTS Explore. This is, in the past, has been an annual event where every spring we have had a couple of days leading up to our Spring Theology Conference where we welcome prospective students and their families and pastors to join us at a time to explore the seminary and to explore Greenville, South Carolina, as these students consider their different uh, seminary options. This year, we're introducing a fall version of it. It's, it's very similar to what we do in the spring, except there's no conference uh, on the heels of it. And so in one sense, you lose that benefit. But in the other, in another sense, it's a little bit more relaxed. You get uh, some more time to really explore the city and to get to know some of the churches around. Uh, we, we scheduled it to align with their midweek meetings. And, um, and we're really excited to, to see, you know, how many guys come out and to really just showcase the seminary and in another venue without the pressure of the conference on us. We will still do it again in the spring, but we encourage you, if you're thinking about seminary now, either for next spring or next fall or even uh, further out, uh, please join us for this. This is September 19th and 20th. That's a Tuesday and a Wednesday later this month, again, September 19th and 20th. And registration information is available. Available at gpts.edu slash explore. That's gpts.edu slash explore. And of course, you can ask me any questions that you may have. You can contact me here at the seminary by calling in uh, after we record this podcast or um, by emailing me at zgroff at gpts.edu. So that's my announcement. Dr. Piper, did you have any announcements you wanted to bring up uh, before we begin? You know, Zach, we need to tell the prospective students that. Uh, if they, the money they spend to come to examine the seminary, uh, if they enroll uh, their first semester, then that money is deducted from their tuition or fees. And so it's a, it's a trip that can really pay off for them. That's right. And we also provide uh, most of the food that you'll need while you're here. And we'll uh, if, if you give us enough advance notice, we'll even try to get you some host families to put you up for the, the one evening that you would be here. So just to cut down the cost as much as possible for you, we try to make this as accessible as we can, just like we do with everything we do here at the seminary. Well, it might it might even be two evenings. Those that would come some distance might need to come in a day ahead of time as well. So we'll, we'll get them lodging, Lord willing, to give us enough notice. Yes. So again, we encourage you to come and contact me if you have any other questions about that. Now, diving into our questions, um, we have some good ones today. And this is our first one from Alexander Wright. Alexander asks, Dr. Piper, what topics or requests are appropriate for public prayer? Are there any limits? We'll start with the second part of your question, Alexander, and I appreciate it. And that is this, by all means, there are limits. 
They need to be things that are the concern of the church and not uh, individuals. They need to be things that are tasteful and uh, not uh, going to scandalize people or bring offense. And just for people's general reference, I would remind our listeners of the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. This is published with the Free Presbyterian Edition of the Westminster Standards. And they actually have two sets of prayer, public prayer before the sermon, and then they have the prayer after the sermon. And under each heading, they give the... uh, appropriate topics to pray for. You don't have to follow that particular order, but if you just want to be exposed, if you're one who is leading prayer in corporate worship, be exposed here to uh, these categories of petitions, and they're basically modeled on the Lord's Prayer. And that's the second thing I would suggest, is be familiar with the larger catechism's uh, exposition of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. A third resource is Matthew Henry's Method of Prayer. And a fourth resource will be two books, one in the book the seminaries published on worship, the chapter by uh, Mickey Snyder on leading in corporate prayer, and then uh, Samuel Miller's uh, book on public prayer. These resources will give you the background to be an effective uh, leader of prayer in corporate worship. Now, the model that I follow is generally follow general petitions and not specific. And by that, I would mean that we pray for uh, the ill in the congregation, but unless there is an emergency, not by name. Pray for those that need work. But again, unless there's an emergency, not by name, so that we keep our petitions in a way that the broader uh, set of worshipers are able to participate in those petitions. And we're not delving, uh, going uh, too deep for a uh, a public prayer. Uh, Second, I think it's good to pray, though, for the coming of the kingdom. And in doing so, my custom was when I pastored was to uh, over a six-week period or so to pray for the different regions of the world. And that's the one case I might be a bit more specific in praying for the missionaries who are laboring there. Then we, uh, so we follow the Lord's Prayer with praise and adoration, confession of sin, and then petitions and supplications. We also would pray for the church, the Presbytery, uh, if you're a Presbyterian Uh, the larger church, church planning missions. And then we're instructed to pray for uh, our leaders. And so we should pray for our local leaders and state leaders, and particularly for our president, and pray for safety, protection, and wisdom. So that's the general scope uh, of of corporate prayer. And I, um, I think that a lot of men can do a much better job in leading in corporate prayer. And so I encourage our hearers who are ruling elders, our ministers, who have this privilege in corporate worship to study and continue to improve uh, in this part of leading worship. Dr. Pipe, I have a follow-up question on that. When when we're thinking about praying, particularly for the president or if you're not American, for other national leaders— is it appropriate to pray from the front, from the pulpit, for the president's or your national leader's conversion, uh, particularly if there are clear signs that you have an unconverted head of state in your country? Um, and I know at least for us in America, the last couple seem to have suggested that, even though they've been surrounded by professing Christians of, of one type or another. What, what do you think about that particular supplication? I think it's always appropriate. We're to pray for their well-being, so I think it's always appropriate to pray for their conversion and if they would uh, govern then according to the law of God. Thank you, Dr. Piper. 
So our next question comes from Nicholas Murphy, and I uh, right before we hit record, I sent out a little anticipatory tweet about this particular question. I'm sure those of you who saw it are looking forward to hearing Dr. Piper answer it, and that is, without further ado, what is your guy's favorite heresy and why? Well, Zach, since it's addressed to both of us, I'm going to let you answer first. Oh, my favorite heresy? I don't know. I was thinking about it, Dr. Piper, all month, and I don't know if it's really a heresy, but I can tell you my favorite mistaken ideology or religious system is Swedenborgianism. I find it fascinating, not just because of the name, though that probably plays into it, but the whole character of Emanuel Swedenborg and his pseudo-Christian mysticism, and he would appear before international leaders of his time because he was a brilliant physicist as well and they would be asking him science questions he'd answer those and then he'd go off on a diatribe about his latest conversation with the departed apostle paul or king nebuchadnezzar in a dream or whatever and um i find that to be really a, a historical curiosity that that you can't you know you can't get enough of so if they if i had to answer i'd say that swedenborgianism is my favorite heresy but uh, what's your answer? Well, let me say, first of all, you're probably doing that because it's Philadelphia-based. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You're right. <laughs> There's a lot of Swedenborgians in Philadelphia compared to the rest of the world. You're absolutely right. That's right. You know, I um, I stumble over the question itself and uh, trying to understand exactly what Mr. Murphy has in mind. Uh, I don't like heresy. And so, as we answered a few months ago, there's two types of heresy. There's soul-damning heresies, and there are dangerous heresies that affect our sanctification. So in terms of wanting to interact with people, I think I prefer to interact with evangelicals who would hold to a man-centered free will approach to salvation and to uh, uh, charismatics. Because I think that these people are sincere, uh, and they are Christians, but they're holding to positions that desperately affect their sanctification. And so, you know, John Murray said one time, or wrote, that we should have two objects of our evangelism, the lost and then the, the Arminian, the evangelical Christian. Not that they're lost, but they really need to come to a full-orbed understanding of the gospel. And J.I. Packer says in his uh, introduction to John Owen's death of death and death of Christ, that that introduction maybe is the best thing that, that Dr. Packer has ever written, that uh, although uh, to hold to these evangelical positions, um, you can do so and be a Christian, but it's def- definitely going to affect your sanctification. So your favorite heresy, if you're answering it seriously, would be um, particularly those who are who have a sincere faith but are mistaken on key points of doctrine, particularly in soteriology, and uh, you have a sincere concern for them and for the state of their souls and sanctification. Correct. Well, that's a good answer. It's a lot more serious than my answer about Swedenborgianism. So I I applaud you for that, Doctor Piper. Nicholas, thank you for the question. Other listeners, um, if 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 any of you are wanting to ask that question in the future i will refer you to this episode because we probably won't handle that question again um we won't we won't even answer that accidentally again because we've answered it once our next question comes from charlie medina montez and he asks can a christian marry someone who divorced because their ex-spouse committed adultery and this uh this is a question that comes up in one form or another uh every every couple times a year but dr pipa would you would you address this for us Yes, it's an important question for the well-being of people. Um, And yes, the Bible answers that question for us. Uh, For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, that a a Christian may marry a divorced person uh, who is biblically divorced. And the Westminster Confession, I think, lays out two grounds for biblical divorce. One is sexual sin. Now, sexual sin, I'm going to say more than is simply... Uh, adultery, uh, serial uh, fornication, uh, subsequent neglect of one's uh, sexual responsibility in marriage. Um, These types of things 
I believe, are all sexual sin. It's the session has to be involved and work through it, require counseling of the offending party. And if they don't cooperate or don't repent, then I'm at the point where I think that we can, uh, the session can give grounds right for divorce. The other thing that the confession addresses is willful desertion. And again, if a man uh, is not taking care of his family, uh, the law says that he's to provide housing, conjugal rights, and clothing or food. Uh, and so uh, if not, if he doesn't do that, the, the wife is free to go. And Paul says that she's free if um, in that situation. And again, this can be uh, physical abuse. If, if, a, if a man or woman are physically abusing their spouse and they don't repent, I think that is a form of desertion, uh, not caring for a family financially uh, because of gambling or drunkenness. Again, they don't have to walk out the door uh, if, in fact, they have separated themselves from their responsibilities. And that's a bit broader than some people will go, uh, but I believe that there's biblical basis for that answer. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Charlie, thank you for the question. That's an important issue that more and more our folks in our churches are dealing with. And if not themselves personally, officers in the church are helping folks navigate that particular concern. So we appreciate the question. Our next one comes from Brian. And Brian asks, on the topic of closed communion, does denying the sacrament to someone who has a credible profession of faith solely because they are not a member of that congregation trend towards a papist understanding, and I imagine papist understanding of the Lord's Supper. Yes. Uh, Brian, first let's define our terms. There are three approaches to uh, whom a church admits to the Lord's table. The first is open communion where there is the public fencing of the table, and people are cautioned if they're not baptized members in good standing of an evangelical church— they ought not to come. That's the minimum requirement of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, for example. Then there's semi-closed communion, and that's when there's a private meeting as well. So there's a poster up, there's a couple of elders available, and you tell the visitor, this is your first time here, we're having the Lord's Supper today. We'd like you please to meet with a couple of our officers and simply give your profession of faith and that you are a, a member of an evangelical church. Evangelical church. Closed communion, uh, of which Brian asked, is the practice of some denominations only to allow people that are members of that local church or of that denomination to come to uh, the Lord's table. I've not thought about it as trending towards a Roman Catholic understanding. It does trend towards a Lutheran understanding because in the Lutheran church, if you do not have, uh, at least this is my understanding, if you do not have their doctrine of consubstantiation, which means that Christ is physically present in, around, and under the elements, that you uh, may not commune with them. But I wouldn't say it's Roman Catholic trending that way, but I would say it's very sectarian, and it denies the concept of of the body of Christ and one of the basic features of the Lord's Supper, which is to manifest the unity of the body of Christ. In our particular culture, I prefer the semi-closed communion, where it's just a matter of elders uh, interviewing. And we know this. Zach and I were just talking about this the other day. We all know these instances where the warning has been given, and we watch people that we know are not members of evangelical churches taking the Lord's Supper. And we're actually letting them do spiritual damage to themselves. People don't follow that verbal warning. So the, the interview uh, as the means of coming to the Lord's table, I think, is very important but not many churches in the Presbyterian fellowship do that. It is practiced much more, I think, in some of the uh, Dutch Reformed churches. Although the uh, Canadian Reformed Church is one of the churches that practices closed communion. To us Presbyterians, logistically speaking, that is a that would be a tough 
a thing to figure out how how to best take folks out of a service before you distribute elements. You do it as they come in before the service. And then if they've not done that, then you say in your verbal announcement, you know, if you've not had time, if you didn't get here in time today to meet with two of our elders, we ask that you would uh, abstain today and, and speak to us afterwards. Okay. So, no, not out of the service. It's people that are would be there uh, before the service. Uh, some churches actually will give their people a letter that they can take with them when they're visiting churches that demonstrates that they are members in good standing of a particular church. I like that practice. I think if people are going on holiday or work and they ask their session, would you give me a letter, please, that I'm a member in good standing, I can present it to the church where I'm going. Thank you, Brian, for the question. I've learned a few things there in Dr. Piper's answer. Our next question comes from Zechariah King. What are some ways to patiently prepare for pastoral ministry during seasons of slow progress toward the goal of entering into ministry? It's a very important question. It's a question that we want young men to uh, think about uh, and pray over and uh, try to put some of these things into practice. First, uh, along with all other Christians, but particularly a man that thinks he might be called to the ministry, is the continued development of a, of a real piety with practices of Bible study and prayer, if he's married, with family worship, regular involvement in the worship of the church and the church's prayer meeting, and periodically examining oneself with the qualifications of office bearers as we're given them in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, and working in the areas where there are uh, deficiencies. A second would be to continue to develop gifts. Uh, We encourage churches when a man is considering the ministry to give him opportunity to teach, to do evangelism, to lead worship um, so that he can test his gifts, to watch his development of his people skills, how he interacts with people in the congregation, maybe going to hospital visits, going to the nursing home. Then as a man's done that, and he's simply in this waiting season, uh, I say get as much as you can of your languages accomplished during this time. I often tell guys this that are still at university or with their job. They've got a year or two to wait. I say you don't have to wait in your languages. There's excellent resources available uh, electronically now. And I encourage men to work on uh, Latin as well as Greek and Hebrew. So use those years. Uh, it's going to make you a better uh, a minister and it also can greatly shorten your time in seminary. And then be reading uh, in the uh, Reformed classics. Uh, start with Calvin's Institutes. Read Calvin's Institutes. Be very familiar with the Westminster uh, Standards. And then read some of the great uh, th- uh, theologians like Dabney or Bavink or Hodge and others. Uh, I think these are all things we can spend your time profitably as you are in that waiting period. Thank you for the question, Zechariah. I appreciate that particular question more and more. And it's an unfortunate reality of modern education. Our Even our undergraduate degrees, unless you're going to a Bible college, our, our undergraduate degrees are not preparing us for graduate level work in theology and in uh, liberal arts. And, um, you know, men are having to do more work in seminary over more years to really be adequately prepared for the ministry. So any any measure that you can take, even apart from formal education, before you matriculate into a seminary program is going to serve you well as you as you then move into that program and work through it. Okay, our next two questions come from the Tejedas, William Tejeda and his daughter. And we'll start with his daughter's question. Is it wrong or irreverent? to name a child Jesus or even Jesus in light of Philippians 2, 9 and 10? Serious question, and I appreciate it. Yes, I think it is. Um, if if I were a Roman Catholic and who was converted and my family had named me Jesus, I would uh, seek to change my name legally. I think it is taking God's name in vain. Of course, that, that creates a bit of a problem. We think of a city like Corpus Christi. Uh, a name passes over into a, a technicality like that, uh, that 
really is no reference to Christ in our current culture. And I would argue the same thing about the word Christmas. I know it has the name Christ in it, but it's no longer understood in that manner. So these technical titles, names of cities and such, I think are not as problematic as having a personal name. What if a city was literally called Jesus Town? Well, we have Christ we have Christ Presbyterian Church, so if the town was really serious about being Christ Town, I think that would be okay. All right. Just wondering. I've I've frequently thought about this. This is an excellent question and it's an excellent really question for our podcast cuz especially in the Spanish speaking world, you meet a lot of men named Jesus. And, I mean, in English, it's very easy to take the name Joshua instead, but I don't know if there is that option in Spanish or in other uh, Romance languages for, for you know, having that, that particular biblical name, not Jesus, but Joshua, which is just the Hebrew version. Am I right? Yeah, it's close. Right. All right. So our next question comes from the father, William, and he asks, is all drunkenness sinful? I have heard the claim that Jesus served wine to people who were already drunk at the wedding in Cana, as well as the claim that Noah's drunkenness in Genesis 9 is not condemned in the passage. However, several New Testament lists of sins clearly include drunkenness. Is all drunkenness sinful? Right on, William. Yes. Every time a person gets drunk, he's committed a sin. And I think we do uh, look at uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, And as then our fathers have interpreted the uh, seventh commandment as well as the sixth commandment, the uh, Noah pattern first, we simply examine that by the rest of Scripture. In the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, drunkenness is forbidden. I hear people say that, well, drunkenness is, is a greater problem in our age and that's why Christians shouldn't use alcohol. No, drunkenness has been a problem uh, throughout the history of, of mankind. Christ at Cana, there's nothing in the text to assume that they were drunk. It's just that their palate would be sated. They've drunk and they've had a meal. Um, and so they are not going to appreciate uh, the, the better wine, the best wine of all uh, that Christ uh, made. I guess we're going to get to drink that wine in heaven. So (laughs) it's a good wine. Uh, But no, our Savior never would have condoned anything that was uh, sinful. And comparing Scripture with Scripture, uh, it's not, it couldn't be sinful. Now, wine is a gift of God to make glad the heart of man. There is a a certain relaxation, a conviviality uh, that can come from. uh, at a party like that, and you know it's maybe a bit more difficult to describe uh, drunkenness. I think drunkenness is when one realizes that he has uh, lost control of himself, and uh, either his mental functions or his bodily functions, his inhibitions. There's a number of tests that we can uh, that we can apply now. To get drunk is a sin, but that's not the sign of being unconverted. So when Paul says that a drunkard shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the person who is a habitual abuser of alcohol or any other um, mind-altering substance. So the person who has developed the habit of drunkenness uh, has no right to consider himself a Christian. And if he continues in that state, then he is damned. A person who inadvertently uh, drinks too much at one time or another, that's a sin. And it's like every other sin in the Bible. We all at times will commit one sin or another. And if that happens, the person is humbled and repentant and confesses that sin. If it were done in the presence of others, should ask their uh, forgiveness as well. So when the Bible talks about temperance, it's not talking about not using alcohol, but using alcohol carefully. And that's a very important distinction to keep in mind. Thank you, Dr. Piper, and thank you, William, for the question. And it's uh, it's a difficult 
area to navigate, that, that line between uh, making the heart glad and, and inebriation. But like all things in life, it takes wisdom um, to, to not go into excess in the enjoyment of alcohol uh, within uh, moderation and within guidelines that are informed by biblical wisdom and and the Spirit of God. And, and I, I would just say less is always better. Yes, less is always better. This is true. Less is always know your limits and stop before you get near your limits. Amen. Our next question comes from Thomas File. And uh, Thomas, forgive me if I pronounced your name incorrectly. But he asks, how will we all meet Christ in the resurrection? Because Christ has a physical body and there's literally millions of believers, that's if not billions over time. How will we all embrace our Savior? Thomas... I do not know. I just know the Bible tells me that we shall. And I know that God, who is beyond all limitations, will be able to uh, uh, enable us to see Christ as it's been promised in Scripture. And I just can't go beyond that. I just believe it shall be. Amen. Um, what about the—I mean, there is one thing we, we know— won't be the case, and that is that Christ will not be embraced by each of us as if a one-on-one individualistic hug or something like that. This is more of a collective embracing of Christ at the resurrection, or am I going beyond Scripture when I say that? Well, no, and I, you probably have read that question better than I have. By embracing, I, I interpret that meeting him and seeing him, but there's nothing in Scripture that implies that we're each going to and do like Mary Magdalene and, and fall at his feet personally. Uh, we're going to be in his presence, though, and see him. And that's that's how I was looking at the question. Which, either way, is is impossible to really imagine. Because no, no gathering in, in our human experience can uh, anticipate or, or uh, you know, be the prelude to that gathering of millions upon millions upon millions of believers, a whole church militant and triumphant together um, at the resurrection, beholding um, our Savior. So that, it's a good question, Thomas. You know, I do think there's uh, one of the keys is the whole idea of visions in the Bible, where people saw things with their inner senses, even though they were in the body. Uh, in some way, Christ is going to enable each person to look upon him and see him in his glory. And uh, I, I just use the vision, not that's going to happen, but there's just simply a way to see when Ezekiel can go down to Jerusalem from exile and see the temple and see the glory of God there, the same glory of God he saw at, uh, at Shabar, uh, we, we see these kind of of seeing extraordinary seeing things taking place. And so we know that God's quite able to work it out in whatever way is wise and glorious. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. It will be glorious, whatever it is. Um, our next question comes from Israel Quaresma, uh, and he asks, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul uses an argument that is based in God's creation of the world to say that women should cover their heads in the worship service, why nowadays don't we see women using something to cover their heads? Are they sinning against God and bringing strange fire? And again, this is an issue that we that we deal with every once in a while, a couple times a year. Uh, but Dr. Piper, why, why don't we see women using something to cover their heads? And are they sinning against God when they refuse to do so or neglect to do so? There's basically three ways this passage has been understood. Now, the passage is 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, 
man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol, and that's an added word, ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? If a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So that's the, the, uh, the, the text. It's one of the hardest passages in the New Testament, I think, to interpret so the first interpretation is that this is an ongoing, a perpetual requirement, and thus women should have their heads covered. For those hearers who believe this is so, understand that hats or doilies do not meet the purpose of the covering. The word is mantle. It is probably the Jewish women would wear these long um, mantles over the top of their head that would come down over their shoulders. Gentile women would sometimes use even veils such as one sees in a Muslim community. Now, the second approach to the passage is that this was uh, merely a cultural thing, that as Paul is writing to the churches uh, in a day when in public, women never went out in public uh, without their heads covered. It would have been disgraceful for them to do so. And some of the liberated women now in the Corinthian congregation were seeing the equality that belongs to them in Christ, were thinking that uh, they can manifest their liberation by coming to worship uncovered. Now, they couldn't go to the market uncovered or do other social activities. And so this was one of those time uh, mediated things, and you have this in Corinthians, you know, a good bit. You've got First Corinthians 14 that describes the uh, the service of the uh, charismatic apostolic church, where people had the various gifts and whatever, and regulates how they would exercise those gifts in uh, corporate worship. Uh, that's no longer uh, binding on us. The principles are, uh, but in terms of those various things, we don't exercise those things, and so. Uh, that's something that we call, uh, you know, a apostolic prescription for the particular age. A third way to approach the text is that Paul is really talking about this principle of how a woman appears in public. And in his day, um, as I said, she would have uh, had a, a head covering. But it, the cultural part then is that wherever one is um, – a woman should have, should dress in a way that manifests her role. And that's why Paul speaks of a head shaved or a hair cut, you know, really, really uh, short. And you see uh, in verse uh, 16, uh, if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her. And the Greek word is instead or in place of a covering. And so it might be that Paul is saying that as long as she is in that culture, appears in a feminine way that distinguishes her from her male counterpart, uh, that's fine. If, in fact, she's got her head cut or shaved or whatever, then she should have a covering since her hair cannot serve as a covering. Now, I think that either two or three are the proper interpretation. And the reason is, again, comparing Scripture with Scripture, we go to the pastoral epistles, which are no longer descriptive, but prescriptive for the church in the non-apostolic age. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives instructions for women's dress in corporate worship. In verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. 
Now, if she had on the kind of veil that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 11, you would not know how she had her hair fixed. You wouldn't know if it were braided with uh, jewels or whatever. So Paul seems to be right here in a context where women were not veiled, uh, but they still had to uh, uh, adorn themselves not only femininely, but modestly in corporate worship. So I take uh, either two or three as the uh, proper way to uh, understand this passage of Scripture. I have no problem with with the women in our culture who want to wear a veil, although we recognize it's not common in our culture. And that really, as I said, a little doily or a hat doesn't quite meet uh, the uh, – if one wants to follow this text exactly, that does not meet the requirement of the text. Thank you, Dr. Piper. This is an issue that comes up uh, even in personal correspondence that I have with friends of mine. They ask me uh, this particular question. I don't know why they ask me. I don't have any special insight into it, but um, your answer really covered all the bases. So Israel, uh, Israel, thank you for the question. Dr. Piper, thank you for the answer. And we will move on to our next question. Uh, This is from Nikki T. And Nikki asks, how long should believers be spending daily reading the Bible and praying? Do you think the amount of time prescribed might change depending upon the person? I read the Puritan board recently, and this guy was saying that he got up every morning at 430 and did three hours of devotions before work. This seems so daunting to me. I don't even think that I want to do that. How do I build up to being able to do that? Thank you, Nikki. You know, um, that's the kind of thing, if somebody's doing that, probably better not to advertise it. Um, I think it's one thing to say I get up at 4.30 for my devotions before I go to work, but uh, that I wouldn't do that. But anyway, uh, it puts an unbearable burden upon young Christians or people whose time constraints are different. I believe the amount of time that we spend is going to vary. Uh, with our callings. Young mothers would like to have more time. Uh, They're blessed to snatch 10 minutes of Bible reading, 10 minutes for prayer. Uh, As their life circumstances change, uh, then they're able to spend uh, uh, more time. Um, And so that's part of it, according to our circumstances. And I encourage people who don't have the regular practice to set that as a goal. 10 minutes a day, to begin in Bible reading and prayer. Then as you develop that proper biblical habit, uh, you will that time will expand. And so um, I'm hesitant to put time limit on it. I think that we all ought to have a regular prayer life that covers the aspects of prayer laid out in the Lord's Prayer of, of adoration, uh, thanksgiving, confession, supplication. We all have some Bible reading program that we're working on, whether it's reading a, uh, a chapter a day or working through somebody like Matthew Henry or whatever, so that it, it will change according to uh, to the person. And yeah, in terms of getting to that three hours a day, that you know, if you put in there, person's reading John Owen for an hour a day or things like that. You know, then it's also a bit more manageable for you if you had the time. Uh, devotions could be reading uh, Christian books in addition to reading the Bible and praying. So your goal, Nikki, is is regularity, and then recognize that in God's providence, when you miss a day, that it's not bad luck. It's simply a missed day of communion with God and. You repent of that and seek to do it uh, the next day. I hope this I hope this helps, uh, and uh, w- just try to get started in uh, you know the daily habit. And Nikki, for what it's worth, this is a topic that we uh, approach and tackle in our Reformed Spirituality class here at the seminary, which is a first semester course taught by Dr. McGraw. And when I took it. Um, one of the issues that I was really impressed by was brought up in a book by Albert Martin called, I think, You Lift Me Up, Overcoming um, Ministerial Challenges or Difficulties. It's a great little book. It's geared toward ministers, but it would be beneficial for any Christian believer to read it, male or female, whatever. And in it, 
Dr. Uh, Pastor Martin makes this wonderful point, and it's, om- it's almost uh, funny how obvious it is, and that is that we as Christians have this rich theology of uh, whole being, that we are not disembodied spirits, but rather we are, um, you know, bodies and we are spirits. We are both. We are incarnated spirits, so to speak. We're enfleshed. And as a result, our spiritual lives and well-being are directly um, impacted or affected by our physical lives and well-being. And so for me, uh, I had this desire to want to wake up earlier and my body just wouldn't get out of bed earlier. And I realized that I had this uh, probably a, a bit too much sugar and sweets and cakes and cup cookies in my diet. So I cut a lot of that stuff out and I've been sleeping better and waking up earlier and able to do uh, devotions in the morning. I'm, I'm not doing three hours between 4.30 and 7.30 or anything like that. But um, I do get a, a good devotion time in the morning that feeds me for the rest of the day. And part of that was adjusting my diet so I would sleep better and wake up you know, more well-rested. Let me add a couple of things here. One is you did mention ministers. Now, ministers should be spending. That person on the Puritan board probably was a minister. And ministers, because we're paid to do that. We, we, have, the, we have the freedom. And so if a, a man has time to get up and, and to pray and uh, read the scriptures and then read an hour in a great uh, biblical classic, uh, that's wonderful. Uh, also, we have to lead our families in a, in family worship. Yes. Um, and the other thing is, although I, the way I'm designed by God, I've got to do it first thing in the morning because I have one of those minds that keeps everything running all day long. So when my mind's fresh and uncluttered is the best for me. But other people, let's take Zach's example, the person is not a morning person. Uh, but they're really a great night person, uh, and they can do uh, a really devoted time of prayer and reading, uh, then suit, again, how, how you've been made and how God's made you. Others will, you know, lunchtime's a good time for, for them to uh, spend time uh, doing that. Well, I think the important principles are that although we ought to be praying um, extemporaneously during the day, um, I think that Christ is quite quite clear. He wants us to draw aside in private, not on the treadmill, not on a walk or a run, but draw aside in private, have a plan. It's so important to have a plan. If you don't have a plan, Satan will trip you up. In my book on discipleship, studies in the confession of faith, I actually have a section, an early chapter, on how to develop some of these habits and practices of uh, daily devotions. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Here's our next question. So this comes from Stephen Butler, and towards the end of July, he sent in a question asking if a deacon was to read scripture in the worship service, would that be a violation, or perhaps a better word would have been a conflation of the roles of deacon and elder? Thank you, Stephen. Stephen's a good friend of mine. His father was one of my interns years ago. Um, Yes, I think the roles are clear in Scripture. I think the Scripture, as well as uh, the directory of worship, uh, is quite clear that uh, the Word of God read is an act of worship. First Timothy uh, 4, uh, for example, that the ministers to give attention to the reading, and that was the public reading and exhortation. Uh, so it uh, is proper duty of a minister, but a ruling elder uh, uh, may read Scripture in public worship. And then the standards say, I talked a while ago about testing someone's gifts, that a man who's under the approval of the session for the development of his gifts, uh, preferably at least under care of the session, if not the presbytery, uh, then may occasionally uh, lead in prayer or read Scripture as well. But uh, a deacon, uh, that's not a responsibility that the Scripture gives to a deacon. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Good question, Stephen. Good practical question for us. All right, our next question comes from Israel Quaresma. Israel asks his second question for the podcast. In Second Chronicles 29, verses 25 to 36, God orders instruments in the worship service. During the Holocaust of the sacrifice, the Levites played the instruments. 
Do you think that because of this passage, we can consider the instruments in the worship service as a part of the ceremonial law? If they were part of the ceremonial law, were they also to be abolished in Christ? You know, Israel, the, the Reformed have approached this issue in two ways. Uh, the first approach would be yes. They are part of the priestly exercise of the sacrifices and festivals, and thus uh, musical instrumentation should not be used inside the worship service. Uh, others uh, say that, well, since they weren't themselves typical of Christ, then uh, it's okay to use them within the worship service. I think that's probably been the older, more modern position. Uh, that doesn't make sense. It's, it's more recently been the, uh, but the position. Calvin, the Reformers, all took the former uh, position. I take a position a bit in between. I am. I think we should have no non-lyrical musical instrumentation in the worship service. Not an offertory. Uh, that I think is hearkening back to uh, the sacrificial system. But if we looked at uh, the musical instrument as a circumstance of worship, and its purpose is merely to help us sing then I think it moves from being an element of worship, which it was in the Old Covenant, now to being a circumstance of worship, and thus used in moderation, musical accompaniment uh, is proper in the worship service. Good Reformed people uh, are on both sides of this issue. Uh, it's one of those places we keep studying and praying, and we, and we bear with one another. I go to a church that uses non-lyrical music, uh, I don't prefer it, but I don't think it's an issue where I'm going to draw the line in the sand and say, you're not worshiping God. They, they've thought through this. They believe that they're obeying the regular principle. And so I'm, as long as we're at that church, I submit to the ruling of the elders. Good question, Israel. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our next question comes from Israel's brother, Davi. He asks, a few years ago, millions of Brazilians all around the country scheduled a political demonstration, which was demanding the impeachment of our former president for the Lord's Day. So this is a political demonstration scheduled on the Lord's Day. Many faithful pastors and elders were encouraging Christians to go to the streets to participate in this demonstration against political corruption instead of going to church saying that support of our fellow countrymen and women in this decisive time of our history would be a matter of necessity. Do you believe this is actually a case of necessity? You, you know, David, I don't. I mean, the Bible is very clear about necessity. There are things that have to do with the, uh, uh, the daily well-ordering of our callings in society, our acts of mercy, uh, necessary for the protection of, and preservation and well-being of life. Uh, the better place to have been on that day was in corporate worship, praying, uh, because that's where the world has changed, uh, in the worship of God and the prayers of God's people. So I know that happens. People have written to me privately about that. But no, I, I don't think it's ever appropriate, and I don't know even that pastors should encourage people to do more than exercise their own consciences. So, for example, let's say a, there's a boycott uh, of a uh, abortion clinic. I think the on a Saturday the church could announce that, but you don't put people on a guilt trip uh, whether they participate in uh, such a, a boycott, but definitely not on the Lord's Day. Thank you, Dr. Piva. Our next question comes from Doug Gates, and Doug asks, if Calvin were alive today, would the PCA ordain him? And Doug, you, your question has more layers than you may realize. So, Dr. Piva, <laughs> how would you go about tackling this one? It's a question for which there's no answer. It's what we would call anachronistic. Uh, Calvin uh, is the greatest theologian of his time, probably of the church. But part of the, of the role of the church in the understanding of Scripture is uh, men building each generation upon the shoulders of those who are, uh, have gone before us. So I would say if Calvin were alive today, Calvin would probably have a few positions that would be a bit different from the positions, although I cannot off the top of my head 
think of a position that Calvin held to that would be contrary to uh, the confession of faith. It really is irrelevant because he didn't have the confession of faith. He he was a pioneer of of discovering biblical truth in his day, and we uh, should profit from him. But to ask such a question really isn't profitable. It's an ahistorical question, and Doug, you're asking it doesn't cast aspersions on you or your character or your understanding of history, but this is something you'll hear in presbyteries frequently when men take particular exceptions and then other men want to uphold the the, the confessional standard. The, the men taking the exception sometimes will say, well, come on, wouldn't, wouldn't you ordain Calvin? You're basically saying you wouldn't ordain Calvin. And it's, it's just not a helpful rebuttal to the examination of a man at Presbytery. And let me say, Doug, that this uh, often is used in case of the Westminster's position on the Lord's Day. When you read Calvin and his sermons in Deuteronomy 5, this is the position he came to as a later Calvin. So he, even his own lifetime, grew, and he's every bit as strict uh, with respect to the uh, Sabbath as were the framers of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the urban myth that Calvin Lonbold on the Sabbath has been exposed, um, and there's, there, was, there was no truth to that at all. And for what it's worth, the PCA as a denomination does not ordain people as a denomination. It's our presbyteries ordain men. And a man who passes uh, one presbytery's examinations won't necessarily be received into another presbytery if he seeks to transfer. And so that's just another little wrinkle in the in the question there. So our next question comes from Chad uh, Reinhardt of Nashville. And he asks, this is another polity question, he asks, what is the appropriate role of a congregant in pursuit of greater confessionalism when his congregation, as well as the presbytery that covers the area in which he lives, clearly holds to loose subscription? So Dr. P, or Dr. Piper, if you would first define loose subscription for us and then answer the question. Right. Uh, In some Presbyterian denominations, like the PCA, there's two approaches to subscription. Now, subscription is when the office bearer, the minister, the ruling elders, and the deacons take an oath that they hold to the doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Historically, uh, that uh, vow was, I believe, that the Confession of Faith uh, has teaches the system of doctrine found in Scripture. And so it was that, yes, it's my confession that all the doctrines found in the confession of faith uh, are proper exegesis of the Scripture. Now, there can be minor scruples over an exegetical issue. Uh, so, for example, I have one friend who would consider himself a strict subscriptionist who doesn't – he thinks that the uh, doxology uh, in Matthew 5 on the Lord's Prayer is not in the original text of Scripture. So he will scruple that and he subscribes to the Westminster Standards that that last part of the exposition of the Lord's Prayer is not in Scripture. Now, that doxology is in Scripture elsewhere. There's no error in that doxology, but it's not in that particular passage of Scripture. And then loose subscription or system subscription, which is what the Presbyterian Church in America adopted a few years ago, is that a minister can hold to, generally speaking, the doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Wherever he has a difference of opinion, he must tell his presbytery. And then the presbytery must decide whether that exception strikes at what's called the vitals of religion. In other words, is it part of what men now determine to be the system? Um, or is it, um, yes, it's, 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 a, it's an exception, but we're going to accept you, or it's no exception at all of any importance. Uh, so that's that's the background. Now, a congregant has a much different role in a church than an office bearer. So a congregant has a responsibility. In the first place, the church might hold to uh, loose subscription, but is the minister teaching error as the congregant understands uh, the doctrines of the confession of faith? So if the minister's teaching against, say, on the Sabbath— He's teaching and practicing against that. And the congregant's responsibility is to go to the minister 
and then if necessary to the session and then if necessary to the presbytery and if you're in a church that has loose subscription um, you're probably going to uh, your your uh, what's called a complaint is going to be denied you still have the privilege to go to the general assembly uh, with that complaint that my pastor is teaching against keeping the Lord's Day holy. Now, a lot depends on how serious he is. We we have men in the PCA who have tried to say, for example, that you could have any day you wanted. That has been clearly um, determined by the General Assembly to be a violation of Scripture and our standards. You might have someone who says, I think it's okay uh, on Sunday afternoon to watch a football game. Now, any minister that preached that ought to have his head examined. But um, that is not doesn't rise to the same level in our denomination uh, as uh, the other illustration does. So a lot comes back to you can stay in the church if he's not preaching error. If he's preaching error and you go through your ever how far you want to take it, go to the session or the presbytery. Uh, I think you've, at that point, been clear to your conscience, and at that point, you ask permission of your session to visit other churches, to find a church where you believe you and your family will be under sound teaching. Don't do that on your own, though. Uh, we're not consumers. We've taken vows, and so we need to be respectful to the session and ask permission to uh, uh, visit churches to see if you can find a church that uh, is, uh, is is more confessional. So I know it's difficult, and I feel for you, uh, theoretically, uh, anybody that's in, in that situation, but that's how I think a congregant would approach it. Now, if the error is just ongoing and serious, and particularly if you've got uh, older children, uh, and you just come to a point you don't want them under that, uh, I have a friend that was in a church that um, there was pretty much a constant uh, belittling of the law of God. And his boys were getting of an age where he and his wife could discern. His boys were getting of an age that he did not want to have to go home every week and defend the law of God. And so they made the decision they were going to need to go elsewhere. It is a matter of conscience. And whatever we do, we must also almost always do it humbly and respectfully. Thank you, Dr. Piper. And thank you for the question, Chad, and for your concern for confessional fidelity in, uh, in your presbytery as well as in others. Um, the, one, of the great, <clears throat> one of the great things about Presbyterian polity is that in a very biblical sense, uh, it, it empowers members of the church to, uh, to defend uh, biblical orthodoxy. And it's it's you're not you're not merely at the whims of, of pastors and elders, though certainly you are submitting to them in all humility and in grace. But you as a member have uh, the ability to pursue the peace and purity of the church, just as your vows indicate. So we appreciate and it. And it's not schism. It's important to understand that yeah. if you go through the through things in the proper order, that's the right that's been given to members of the church. And it's much healthier to use those than it is simply to bail out. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you, Chad, and um, may the Lord prosper prosper you and your church um, as you think about these things. Our next podcast, uh, the next time we'll be sitting down with Dr. Pipa, will be October, I'm looking at my calendar now, October 2nd. October the 2nd. Yep, Monday, October 2nd, same time, 2.30 to 3.30 or 3.45, depending upon our (laughs) technology. But October 2nd at 2.30, we'll go live again. So mark your calendars. I'm marking mine now. And I will be asking for your questions between now and then. And again, those of you who are prospective students, please consider joining us on Tuesday and Wednesday, September 19th and 20th, for our fall GPTS Explore. We would love to have you here. We would love to show you the seminary, to introduce you to our faculty and some of our students, to feed you good food, and then also to allow you an opportunity to explore Greenville, South Carolina as a uh, future home of yours for a few years while you prepare for the ministry. And let me add as a uh, word of thanksgiving to our God and to those of you who pray for us 
We have our record enrollment this fall of 22 new students. We already have three, possibly four coming in January. So we praise God for that. Keep praying uh, for us. And if you're interested, almost half of these students are from uh, foreign countries. And if you've got a burden for missions, you or your church, a great way to do missions is to support uh, one of these uh, nationals. Um, you can get into seminary for what it would cost to put a trainee in language school for one year. And so contact Zach if you're interested in in helping that or in the general support of, of the seminary. If you like what you're hearing, it's really been interesting, Zach, as I'm out and about, I am meeting more and more people who are listening to the podcast. I was preached over in Tuscumbia uh, a week ago, and I had two or three people come to me right off the bat and say, we listen every week, every, every month, and we love faith and practice. So if you love it, help us keep doing it. Amen. Thank you, At Dr. Least pray Piper. for us. Above all, yes. pray for us. Please, we covet your prayers. We're seeing a return on those prayers uh, this fall. Well, thank you, Dr. Piper, and thank you to our listeners. Until next time, I'm Zach Groff, and this was Faith and Practice, a segment on the Confessing Our Hope podcast, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.